Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host, Shante Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Today is Wednesday. This is our day where we talk all things relationship. We have been in the book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. Today, we're going to start out with a little bit of our Black History Month tributes. Although, if you've been watching me long enough, you know that just about every day is a Black History History Day tribute because we're often reading Black authors. Um, We are on episode 90. Can you believe it? We are about 10 episodes from completing season 11. I'm still praying about where season 12 is going, and um, we are going to take a bit of a station break before we start season 12, Um, but I wanted to let you all know that we have a special guest coming on next Tuesday. Now, again, if you've been following Daring Dialogues, you know that on Tuesdays, we head over to one of my main pages on Facebook, which is Black Table Talk. Um... Right now, we have about 40,000 followers. We've gained about 5,000 followers within the last two weeks um, because of some of our postings over there that have gone viral. And people have been looking for positive content around Blackness and Black people. And so um, our followership over there has began to increase exponentially over the last two weeks. So please make sure you check out Next Tuesday, again, we'll be on our Facebook page, Black Table Talk. We're going to have a special live guest with us, Dr. Diane M. Stewart. She is a um, professor at Emory University, and she's going to be talking with us about Black women and Black love and Black family. And it's going to be a powerful and dynamic conversation. Um, And that conversation is sponsored by the We Dare Squad. Uh, remember that everything that we do um, within this platform is for the people, of the people, by the people, sponsored by the people. So I want to give you all that heads up. It's going to be at the same time, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, February 28th on that Tuesday on the Black Table Talk page. Let's get into historically Black American icons who attended HBC, HBCUs. As I said, we are not covering every single icon in this book, but we are, we are right now, I believe, in the, they call it the hip-hop generation. <clears throat> so we are looking at HBCU graduates in the hip-hop generation, and let's see who we are covering today. Yesterday on Black Tabletop, we covered Taraji P. Henson, learned a couple of interesting things about her. And now we are going to cover today Erica Badu. Erica Badu. Erica Badu. All right. Erica Badu is a singer songwriter. She attended Grambling State University. She was born in 1971. And of course, thankfully, she is still living. Erica Badu is known by many names, Badula Oblagata, Sarah Bellum, Analog Girl in a Digital World, 
Manuela Maria Mexico and Fat Belly Bella. But the one that captured the world's attention isn't so much a name as it is a title, the first lady of Neo Soul. Badu's debut album, Baduism, helped spread this musical genre around the globe. Since then, she has won four Grammys, two NAACP Image Awards, and an American Music Award. Forever forward-looking and genre-defying, her latest work is often described as Afro-futurist. But what remains a constant in her music is the centrality of blackness. Excuse me. Her lyrics reflect our deep complexity. Born in Dallas, Texas, Badu evinced a talent for captivating audiences at an early age. Her mother was an actress and young Badu wanted to be just like her. Acknowledging this, her mother encouraged Badu's ambition, inviting her daughter to join her on stage at the Dallas Theater Center in 1975 when Badu was just three years old. By the time Badu was in middle school, she was a member of two dance troupes, sang in the choir at First Baptist Church of Hamilton Park, and acted in summer theater productions. By 13, she'd taken a keen interest in America's then newest genre of music, hip hop. <clears throat> Excuse me. She was so serious about hip hop that she went by the stage name MC Apples <laughs> and rapped at local festivals. When it was time to audition for Dallas's premier performing arts high school, Badu was so confident in her abilities that she chose not one concentration, but two, dance and theater. She was accepted into both. Now I can identify with that because, um, let me see, when I was in middle school, I had to um, audition for the school that I went to and I applied for music and uh, for vocal music and art. And I got accepted into both programs. And then they made me choose. Let's not ever do that to children again. <laughs> That's the one thing that I really dislike about arts programs is the children that are multi-gifted and multi-talented are forced in those kinds of programs to choose between one or the other. Um, when really they should be actually developing whatever arts, gifts, and skills they have. They really should be developing them at the same time, but they make you choose. At the Performing Arts High School, Badu studied modern dance, ballet, and tap while balancing responsibilities as a member of the Entertainers, the school's musical and theater group. Upon graduating, she ventured to Grambling State University, leaving the bustling streets of Dallas, Texas behind for the calm backwoods of Grambling, Louisiana. Badu was constantly late to class. Though she majored in theater studies, she found she learned far more outside of the classroom than during lectures. Throughout the city, she explored and tested various facets of her identity. She added Badu to her stage name after quickly becoming known for it. Badu is a non-word used when scatting and was the only scat she knew at the time. She also had a brief foray into the world of the Five Percenters, an organization steeped in numerology and founded on the philosophy that only 5% of the world's population possesses true knowledge of themselves. Many of his spiritual teachings are reflected in her earlier lyrics. In 1993, she returned to Dallas and joined the Soul Nation Theater Company. While acting by day, she wrote and recorded songs by night with her cousin, Robert Bradford. 
By the spring of 1994, they were performing their set before live audiences. One of these earlier audience members happened to be Kadar Massenberg, a music exec who had recently founded Kadar Entertainment under the auspices of Universal. He asked to sign her. Badu's debut album, Baduism, was released just two years after signing with Kadar Entertainment and included many of the songs she'd written with her cousin. The album was a critical and commercial, commercial success. On and On won a Grammy for the Best Female R&B Vocal Performance, and the album won a Grammy for Best R&B Album. Since then, she's produced five more albums and two mixtapes, and she never quite left the stage. To date, she's acted in six movies and participated in nine documentaries. As she writes in On and On, her cipher just keeps moving like a rolling stone. She says, these are the dictates of my life. Never have barriers or roles and face all obstacles that appear in front of me. Erica Badu. All right, one more before we move into our book on today. Also located in this book in this section, which we are not going to go over because we've actually been reading uh, some of her work before, which is Stacey Abrams. She is a graduate of Spelman College. But we're going to go on to Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Most, of, most people know him for his book, Between the World and Me, which we have also read on this platform in our past seasons. But he's most well known for his um, journalist work in the newspaper. He was the one who wrote the entire um, article spread. I think it was like maybe, I think they said 11 pages on the case for reparations. It was his work in that article that um, really starts sparking another conversation about making the case for reparations for African-Americans in the United States. Ta-Nehisi Coates is a writer and he graduated from Howard University. He was born 1975. Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of America's premier cultural and political critics, having written extensively on racism's pernicious effects on both the country's institutions and citizens. His work has garnered numerous awards, not least of which are the MacArthur Genius Grant and the National Book Award for Nonfiction. Signifiers of a type of success the young Coates likely didn't imagine as a high school senior with a 1.8 grade point average. By Coates' own account, he had resigned himself against the notion of getting into Howard University. While he had a sibling who'd already graduated from Howard, two who were at the time attending, and a father who worked in Howard's library, Coates didn't believe his GPA was high enough to get admitted. But Howard admitted him, and over the years, much of Coates's writing has been about his alma mater, a place he calls the Mecca. There's a difference, he explains, in his seminal work between the world and me. While Howard is a more traditional institution that's concerned with grade point averages and Phi Beta Kappa, the Mecca is a spiritual place that houses the intellectual and artistic energies of all its former students. It's the Mecca you feel when you step on campus. At the Mecca, Coates witnessed the multiplicity of blackness. The yard bustled with Nigerian aristocrats, tatted men of Omega Sci-Fi, and California girls in hijab and long skirts. The ideas of the Moreland Spring Arm Research Center were just as varied. 
This library and archival center contain nearly every book by or about black people and Coates visited it religiously. Books in hand, he'd sit at a reading table and scour the text for hours. He was on an intellectual journey guided in part by peers and professors at Howard. Those professors challenged his every assumption about blackness, not allowing him to rest on easy answers. If Coates asserted that black skin conveyed nobility, they'd ask him about the black people who practiced slavery for centuries. If he argued that those black people were merely puppets, they'd ask how a group of people could be both puppets and masters of the universe. Coates found this kind of probing invigorating. He committed to a career in journalism, a field that encouraged such critical thinking. He began with a small beat at the Washington City paper, but soon landed pieces at Philadelphia Weekly, the Village Voice in Time. His most formative tenure, however, was at The Atlantic, one of the country's oldest and most storied cultural magazines. His 2012 cover piece for The Atlantic, Fear of a Black President, garnered him the National Magazine Award for Essays and Criticism. His 2014 feature, The Case for Reparations, won the George Polk Award for Commentary and was named the top, the top work of journalism of the decade by New York University's Carter School of Journalism. His 2016 book of nonfiction, Between the World and Me, took the nation by storm. In it, he reckons with the many ways white America has plundered and continues to plunder the black body. That same year, he branched out and wrote a comic book series about Black Panther for Marvel Comics. And in 2019, he published his debut novel, The Water Dancer, which follows a superhuman black protagonist in antebellum America. Surely there is more to come, but before any new projects hit the shelves, he's journeyed back to the Mecca to re-up. In 2021, he joined Howard's English department as the Sterling A. Brown Endowed Chair. So uh, right now, Howard's English department and the theater department is lit, lit, lit um, with lots of people that we know, but they are teaching at Howard. My only Mecca was, is, and shall always be Howard University. I will tell you right now, Probably if I had a son or a daughter, I would be steering them to Howard University. I'm just saying. Now, I didn't graduate from Howard. Um, but if my child was interested in journalism, writing, dance, theater, I would probably say go to Howard. Right now. Just because of who's teaching. All right. We're moving into our read for today. What happened to you? I am going to try to leave more time for conversation today. Um, I did see, um, make sure I say the name right. Ellis Lockett, if you want to join us in conversation today, I'm going to leave some time to make sure that you are able to um, get in. And of course, Pastor Ben and Bibliophile Tay, thank you all so much for joining me live this morning. So we are still in that conversation about post-traumatic wisdom coming from what happened to you, conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing by Dr. Bruce Perry in conversation with Oprah Winfrey. They're talking about how we are not meant to be isolated as people. 
We're not meant to um, raise children alone. I think these are some important conversations that need to be had, especially in our day and age. And we're going to start there. Oprah says, you're not meant to raise children isolated and alone. Absolutely not. We are meant to distribute caregiving among the many adults in our band or our community. <clears throat> and we talked about this before. They said, he said, in the past, historically, there used to be a four to one ratio, meaning there were four adults around for every one child that came into the world. Now that ratio has actually reversed that for every one adult, people think for every one adult, you can care for four children for every one adult. This is becomes problematic. Dr. Perry says, single parents, referring to Oprah's mother, like your mother, often end up feeling like they are inadequate, that there is something wrong with them, that they aren't enough, when really it's the modern world that's not enough. A strong connection to community is as important today as it was thousands of years ago. The tragedy of the modern world is that community like this is harder and harder to find. Not everybody has friends like Gail. Fewer people are active in their community of faith. Not everybody feels like they belong. There is a direct relationship between a person's degree of social isolation and their risk for physical and mental health problems. But when you do have connectedness or your community home or your church home, you have built-in buffers for whatever stress or distress you experience. Oprah says, we do belong, we are enough, but it's hard to see that in our current world. Imagine that your annual review at work goes badly. Your supervisor gives you some negative feedback. You feel really upset about it. You keep thinking about it. You keep running it through your head again and again. You go back and talk to one of your colleagues. Can you believe he said that? I don't think that's true about me. And your colleague listens and reassures you. No, that's not true. He's full of it. You definitely feel soothed for a bit. Then you call another colleague and run it by them. And you go home and you go over it with your partner. You've engaged in three or four or five doses where you controlled how and when you talked about your distressing feedback. As your perspective is heard, you become regulated and reassured. The next day, you start to feel better. You created a controllable and moderate revisiting of the distress and that has changed your reaction to it. It is no longer distressing. Originally, you were dysregulated. You shut down the rational part of your head. You distorted the comments or maybe magnified them. But now you can reflect more accurately on the feedback and maybe see some truth in the comments. That was not possible until you could use your many relational interactions to revisit and regulate. When we have a community, we can do this kind of dosing to regulate any stressful or distressing experience we might be having. We can build and demonstrate resilience. We do so all the time. But imagine someone who does not have those relationships that would allow this kind of relational regulation. For someone with relational poverty, these stressful experiences are magnified by the echo chamber of their own head. 
Stress becomes distress. Distress becomes sensitizing, resulting in the same physical and mental effects as trauma. This is the challenge for our modern world. How can we create community when we are so mobile or so screened up or so disconnected? It's a major challenge for creating a healthy future. How can we ensure connectedness and a sense of safety and belonging for everyone? Now that is a Selah conversation. In case you don't know what Selah means, it means to pause and calmly think about it. We're moving into chapter eight, which is our brains, our biases or biases in our systems. This is Oprah beginning this chapter. In 2015, I interviewed a man named Shaka Singor for my show Super Soul Sunday. At the age of 19, Shaka had been convicted of second degree murder He served 19 years in prison, including a total of seven years in solitary confinement. At the beginning of his sentence, Shaka was angry and violent and quickly sank into a system that had no interest in preparing him for his eventual return to the outside world. But after six years behind bars, something shifted and Shaka began to transform. In his five by seven cell, he started meditating, reading, journaling, and writing what would eventually become his best-selling memoir, Writing My Wrongs. When I first saw a photo of Shaka on the cover of his book, I was skeptical. What could this tattooed, dreadlocked, convicted killer teach me? Our conversation was one of the best I've ever experienced. As his story unfolded over the course of our two and a half hours together, so did my understanding of what it means to fall short, what it means to go astray, and what it truly means to be shaped by your environment. Shaka, born James White, grew up in a middle-class family in Detroit. His father, a member of the Air Force Reserves, worked for the state of Michigan. His mother stayed at home with James and his five siblings. As a young boy, James was a straight-A student with dreams of becoming a doctor. From the outside, the Whites looked like the ideal American family. But Shaka says for as long as he can remember, His mother had an explosive temper and took out her rage on her children. Did you feel love growing up? I asked him. I was told, I do this because I love you, but it was always a whooping or a punishment. I connected to this immediately. Shaka recalled coming home from school one day when he was nine, thrilled to have gotten an A plus on a test and hoping his mother would share this joy. Instead, she threw a pot at him so furiously, it cracked the tiles on the kitchen wall behind him. I asked if he ever found out what she was upset about. I never knew, he said. My mother was upset often. As I listened, my heart broke for Shaka and the millions of people who as children regularly experience paralyzing fear at home. The tragedy isn't just what that fear felt like in the moment. It's that they learned to bury the emotion and accept the behavior. In addition to his mother's physical abuse, Shaka says the last five years of his parents' marriage were unstable. He was devastated by their separations and rejoiced at their reunions, gutted and lifted each time the cycle repeated. When they finally divorced, Shaka, tired of being betrayed by the people he loved most, 
says he built on an emotional wall and sought protection and acceptance from the streets. He began acting out, getting in fights, refusing to do schoolwork, running away from home. What struck me most about Shaka's story is that at no time during this change, from straight-A student to street kid, did anyone ask, what happened to you? Why are you behaving this way? Not one adult seemed to notice or care that this young boy had completely lost his way. By age 14, Shaka was selling drugs, breaking into houses, and shoplifting. After being shot at 17, he began carrying a gun with him at all times. He was in a culture and environment that perpetuated the idea that a young man's worth was defined by having money, attention, and a reputation as the bad boy. In that space, I felt accepted, Shaka told me. I was around other broken, fragile young males, and we banded together around our brokenness. I thought, this is support. This is love. This is, I got your back, no matter what. But weren't you the smart one who wanted to be a doctor? Why did you want to be a doctor? He paused for 23 seconds on eternity, an eternity in TV time. I could tell he'd never really thought about this before. My mother was always nice when she took me to the doctor, he finally said. He paused again. I guess I imagine if I became a doctor, she would be nice to me. It was a deeply moving moment of realization for both of us. A young man, confused and rejected by those who were charged with raising him, simply seeking his mother's validation and love. When he was 19, Shaka's dangerous life choices came to a head. One night on his way home from a party, he started arguing with a man named David. In the middle of the fight, Shaka grabbed his gun and pulled the trigger and shot David dead. In prison, Shaka found an environment he was familiar with, one where violence and domination reigned. He repeatedly landed himself in solitary confinement for everything from assaulting prison guards to trying to escape. What finally broke him open was a letter from his son. Dear Dad, the letter read, My mother told me you was in prison for murder. Dear Dad, don't murder anymore. Jesus watches what you do. Pray to him and he'll forgive your sins. That part is what just shattered everything, I thought. I refuse for that to be the legacy for my child. That was the moment that I decided that I would never go back to the darkness and that I had to find my light, and I owed it to him to find it. Since Shaka's release from prison in 2010, he's been a vocal advocate for criminal justice reform. He speaks to young people across the country, sharing his story and encouraging young men to avoid life on the streets. He's taught classes at the University of Michigan and is a fellow of the MIT Media Lab. At the heart of his work is the belief that people should not be defined by their past mistakes and that redemption is possible. Most people who are in the process of excavating the reasons they do what they do are met at some point with resistance. You're blaming the past. Your past is not an excuse. This is true. Your past is not an excuse, but it is an explanation. Offering insight into the questions so many of us ask ourselves, why do I behave the way I behave? Why do I feel the way I do? For me, there is no doubt that our strengths, vulnerabilities, and unique responses are an expression of what happened to us. Very often, what happened takes years to reveal itself. It takes courage to confront our actions. It takes courage to peel back the layers of trauma in our lives. It takes courage 
to expose the raw truth of our past, but this is where our healing begins. When we first started talking about trauma over 30 years ago, not many people were aware of its impact on so many aspects of life. Have things changed? When you look at schools, when you look at the healthcare system, when you look at the criminal justice system, really everywhere you look, there are people impacted by trauma who are still misunderstood and sometimes re-traumatized by the very systems that should be helping them. Dr. Perry says this, and then I'm going to stop here. That is the heartbreaking truth. It takes a long time to change people and even longer to change systems. I am optimistic though. Many positive changes are underway. Many more people are aware of how pervasive trauma is. More people understand that trauma can influence our health, but we do have a long way to go. We need more professionals and organizations to change the way they do business to help address the impact of trauma. We'll stop there for today. All right. Was there something in today's reading that you heard that triggered a thought or a conversation that you want to have? Drop it here in the comment section. Is there a question that you want to raise? Drop it here in the comment section. If you want to come live and have a conversation, simply click on the camera and you should be able to, I should be able to bring you on. This is Daring Dialogues and I'm your host today, Shante Charles. If you are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Join us again on tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're watching us through Twitter or listening through Twitter, Spotify, uh, Google Play, any of these broadcasting channels and streams, we want to thank you for your patronage and your listening. Take care, be well, and be light.